At least for me, the regular exercise, I think, is the most important thing that anybody can do. And it's probably the, I hate to say easy because it's it, it's not, I mean, it is easy, but it's hard for people to, to figure out what works for them. But I think it's much easier than diet in a lot of ways. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gail Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Matt Kaberline. Dr. Matt Kaberline is a professor of pathology, adjunct professor of genome sciences, and adjunct professor of oral health sciences at the University of Washington. His research interests are focused on basic mechanisms of aging in order to facilitate translational interventions that promote health span and improve quality of life. He's published nearly 200 papers in top scientific journals and has been recognized by several prestigious awards. His contributions have also been recognized with fellow status in the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Aging Association, and the Gerontological Society of America. Dr. Kaberline is a past president of the American Aging Association and has served on their executive committee and board of directors since 2012. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, Matt. Uh, for a bit of a background, I met Matt at the Lenny Garante lab. Uh, I joined the lab and at the same time Matt left and uh, went to work in uh, the industry for a couple of years. And Matt, can you discuss a bit uh, the early days at uh, Lenny's lab, uh, the early days of aging research? How was it and what was your impression? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I went to, to graduate school thinking I was going to do x-ray crystallography or, or some sort of structural biology. That was my background. And I actually heard a seminar by Lenny during my first year in graduate school where he talked about how his lab was using genetics and molecular biology to study the biology of aging. And I, I don't know exactly what it was, but something about that just turned me on. The, 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 the fact that you could use those, those tools to understand something as complex as aging biology, I found really exciting. And so I went and talked to Lenny, ended up joining his lab, obviously, and doing my PhD with Lenny. And I think it was a really exciting time in the field because that was, at least in my view, that was really the point in time when, when the research went from being mostly observational and descriptive to truly mechanistic. People start like Cynthia Kenyon, Gary Rufkin, Lenny started using the tools of genetics and molecular biology and biochemistry to do mechanistic studies, to, to start to understand, you know, what were the cellular and molecular processes that controlled lifespan. That was, that was really what most of the field was focused on at that point was trying to identify genetic pathways or molecular mechanisms that, that controlled lifespan. So it was really exciting because, because all of a sudden, you know, I think we all started to feel like we had a chance to really understand this biology. And, and in my view, in many ways, that was, that was a turning point in the field where the field started to gain more acceptance and credibility 
among the broader scientific community because it became more mechanistic. Mm -hmm. I, I would say we still, you know, maybe haven't achieved as much credibility as we deserve as a field, but I think that was a really important time because it, it really was a transition from, you know, doing very descriptive studies, mostly in rodents, to doing more mechanism-based studies. So it was very exciting. And the Grantee Lab at that time was also a very exciting environment. As you know, David Sinclair was there at the same same time that I was there. Brian Kennedy had just left the lab when I joined the lab. Shinai was there at the same time that I was there. And these are people who've gone on, you know, to be scientific leaders in the field. And I think having, you know, a, a real density of very passionate strong-willed, strong personalities in the lab at the same time made for a, an exciting and energetic environment. Great. So let's start and talk a bit about your background. When was the time that you knew that you want to be a scientist? Yeah, so I guess I, guess I would say I was a late bloomer. So, you know, I, I didn't really make my connection to science until after I had graduated from high school. I actually spent a few years working sort of manual labor after high school before I went to college. And, and it was really, and then I went to a junior college. So sort of a, a different path, I think, than a lot of people who go on to, to academic careers. And it was, it was during my, I think, first or second year in junior college that I just had a really fantastic biology teacher and, and got turned on to biology at, at that point. And, and then when I went and um, completed my four-year undergraduate degree. I majored in biochemistry. And so I think at that point, I had sort of made the transition to recognizing that I was really cut out for a career, you know, it's in some form in science. Like a lot of people, I really had no clue what doing, you know, real research was like until I got to graduate school. So again, I went to a smaller state school where I completed my four-year degree mostly undergraduates, no PhD students. So I think I didn't really understand what a career in biomedical research was about actually until I got to Lenny's lab. And that was sort of my first, my first introduction to, to what I would call a real, you know, top tier research environment. In many ways, it was kind of jumping off the deep end, <laughs> but, uh, but it all worked out. So, so that, so I think it was, a, it was late that I came to science. And I would say, again, I really didn't know what doing research was all about until I got to graduate school. And that's a, a good plug for good teachers. <laughs> you never know yeah. what passion I mean, you'll ignite. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I can definitely look back on that point in my life and say it was, a, it changed my trajectory, much like, much like the talk that I heard from Lenny. Again, as I mentioned, you know, I went to graduate school thinking I was going to do structural biology because that's what I had been trained in. And, you know, Lenny gave this, this talk that just resonated with me and it completely changed my tra the trajectory of my career. I don't know where I would have been had that I not heard that talk, but uh, but it definitely was a moment that put me on the path that I've been on since. That's awesome. And about that career path, so post Lenny, you know, what can you walk us through kind of that career path to where you are now at University of Washington? Yeah, so I mean, I think obviously I have been extremely fortunate in in the way things have worked out, at least I feel like I've been extremely fortunate. So, you know, as Gil mentioned, when I left Lenny's lab, I actually spent about a year and a half at a small startup biotech company called Longenity. So it was in the aging space. It was actually started by a guy named Pete Estep, who came out of George Church's lab. So a small world. And I think we were ahead of our time. It was really around the idea of 
molecular biomarkers for human aging. And this was back in 2002, right? So 20 years ago, we still don't have really great molecular biomarkers of human aging, but we're starting to get there. So, so I would say we were ahead of our time, but it was, it was a, a, I think an extremely valuable experience for me to have being in that sort of startup environment, three people, everybody does everything. You do whatever it takes to get the job done. If, if you got to take the garbage out one minute and be doing research the next minute and go talk to investors the next minute, that's what you do, right? <laughs> so I'm sure yeah, you guys can probably relate. So, um, so, so I think that was really good for me. And then about a year and a half after, after joining Pete in, at Longevity, my wife finished her PhD thesis. So she was a PhD student at Northeastern at the same time. And, you know, we made the decision that that we wanted to come back to to Seattle both sets of parents were in Seattle we had our first son at that point so in some ways it was a decision for our family that we wanted our our son to be around the grandparents so we we both started postdocs at the University of Washington again you know I was extremely fortunate to end up in Stan Fields lab at the University of Washington as a postdoc Stan even though he you know isn't centrally focused on the biology of aging and even wasn't then he is just such a fantastic human being as a mentor. I feel so privileged to have had him as my postdoctoral mentor because I learned a lot of lessons, both about you know doing good science, but also about being a good scientist and being a really good human being and the importance of family and the importance of supporting the people in your lab. So that was a really great experience for me. And, uh, and then Brian Kennedy was at the University of Washington, had just started his lab a couple of years ago when I joined Stan's lab. And again, I, I just feel so fortunate that he was there because we started this amazing collaboration. I think, you know, we've probably published 80 papers together since wow. that time. I mean, it's just an amazingly productive collaboration. We are, you know, I, I think we we work really, really well together, obviously, with that level of productivity, but also we're really good friends. And and so that was really beneficial for me in my career. And, uh, and I was able to get an independent faculty position at, at the University of Washington. Again, great mentors there. George Martin, I don't know if either of you know him, but... Um, yeah, I know him very well, yeah. Just a, a wonderful person, fantastic mentor, really took me under his wing and supported me, Peter Rabinovich as well. So, you know, I, 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 I certainly recognize that I would not have gotten to the level that my career has gotten to without all of these fantastic people that I was just really, really fortunate to, uh, to be mentored by and to have support me throughout my career. That's great. And getting into some of that research, I'll give you a softball pitch, an easy one here. You talk about health span and lifespan quite a bit. Are there kind of hallmarks of each or a ways that you differentiate those? Sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the way I think about it is health span. So, so different people have different definitions for health span, but I think one of the common ones is you can think of health span as the period of life that is, that is spent free of, of chronic disease and disability. So spent in good health, right? I think of health span as a really useful concept. So, and, and this is where I think the, the field sometimes gets gets off track and off in the weeds when people try to claim that they can measure health span. Health span is a concept. There is no agreed upon assay or set of metrics where you can quantify health span. And yet you will see, and I and I've done this in the past. So I admit I'm I, I'm guilty of this, but I've stopped doing this. You will see titles of paper where people say, you know, X increases lifespan and health span in mice, right? And that 
that that's that's false. And and the author should know better. The reviewers should know better because you can't measure health span. You can't quantify it. You, therefore, you can't claim that you have increased health span, at least in any, any sort of statistical sense. So I really think it's important that we recognize that health span is a useful concept. But when we want to talk about the effect of interventions or or genetic manipulations on health, we need to be precise in what we mean. Lifespan, on the other hand, is is a quantitative value, right? We know how long an organism, an individual lived from birth to death. So that's sort of a rock solid metric. So I think in a lot of ways, lifespan, in my, in my view at least, is still kind of the gold standard that we should be looking at when we're evaluating the effect of, of interventions. And I know there are lots of people in the field who would disagree with that. There are people who would argue that, you know, we really shouldn't be interested in lifespan. We should be interested in health span. I think those things kind of, at least in my mind, pretty much always go together in terms of extending lifespan. But, but, but I view lifespan as a, as a really nice tool because we can quantify it. And there's really no ambiguity about what we mean. Health span, on the other hand, is, is sort of a very squishy term that we really can't measure at this point, at least not in a, in a quantitative, statistically meaningful way. So Matt, what are the L marks of aging? <laughs> what are the hallmarks of aging? <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, we, so, I'm not sure if you're asking me to comment on the hallmarks of aging in capital capital letters, right? Uh, that, that, that we sort of all recognize in, in the field. So, you know, I view the hallmarks of aging from that sort of classic cell paper, now classic, it's only been around for, I don't know, 10 years or so, but, uh, but, but the one everybody recognizes and the figure that you can't go to a meeting without seeing with the, the hallmarks, the nine hallmarks of aging. I think those are really useful, again, from a conceptual and perspective and creating a framework for the way we think about aging. So we can argue about, you know, what really is aging at a molecular, cellular, biochemical level. And I would say we don't completely understand that at this point. I think the hallmarks of aging or the other one that a lot of people will point to is the pillars of aging. You know, those are useful categories that seem to be important for the biology of aging across lots of different animals and, and even into, you know, even simpler eukaryotes. So they're useful things to point to, to say, this is kind of, if we, if we need to put the things we've learned about aging into bins, these are useful bins to think about. And one of the reasons why I like the hallmarks of the pillars, depending on which camp you're in, is it's also a useful way to think about specific targets we can go after from an interventional perspective to modify the biology of aging. But the other thing I think that often gets lost is that these things are all interconnected, right? So, so I don't know if, if you're if you want me to, to list the nine hallmarks of aging, I will probably fail that test. I bet I could get seven. I don't know if I could get all nine, but the fact is they're all interconnected, right? So for example, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction is one of the hallmarks. Cellular senescence is one of the hallmarks. We know that mitochondrial dysfunction can cause cellular senescence or DNA damage is another one that can cause cellular senescence. So these things are, are interrelated when you actually get into the biology. They're just sort of useful artificial categories to create that we can, that we can use to kind of sh think about the way that we understand the biology of aging. I also think they're, they're really valuable for popularizing the biology of aging, both within the broader scientific community and even among the general public. Again, because you need these categories, these things that you can point to, to say, here's what we've learned, and this is important, and here's why it's important. And, and it's just much easier for people to understand if you can point to specific things like 
DNA damage, telomere shortening, mitochondrial dysfunction, than to try to talk about all of that as, you know, this, this really complicated and, and interrelated network that it actually is. Thank you. The CIR2 family of the acetylers, and uh, you worked on this uh, project, uh, as you said, from maybe the beginning of your uh, graduate study that was uh, long ago. And uh, my question is about what was the evolution and how do you see the CIR2 pathway in uh, aging uh, currently? Yeah. So uh, that's, a, that's a complicated question. Uh, so I'll start, I'll start by saying, you know, over the last decade, I haven't done a lot um, of research on, on sirtuins or, or, or their role in, in aging or, you know, even their broader role in, in other biological processes. So I feel comfortable talking with some authority about, you know, the early days of sirtuins where I did my research, but I will absolutely admit that that for the last 10 years, it's more been watching from the sidelines, right? And then, so that's the perspective that, that I'm coming from. So, you know, when I, when I started in Lenny's lab, we were working in yeast at the time, and uh, we kind of knew that, that something in the nucleolus, which is, which is a subcomponent of the nucleus, was important. And these proteins in yeast that were called SIR2, SIR3, SIR4 were important. That actually was Brian Kennedy's work before, before I had joined the lab. And so, you know, I think it was probably the first couple of weeks in the lab, you know, I was talking to people about what projects should I work on. And I, I think it was actually David Sinclair who said, you know, you might want to look at SIR2. That seems really interesting. And so I did a bunch of reading on SIR2 and, and we decided that, that, that we would overexpress the yeast SIR2 gene. And, and we had some reason to think that might be important for lifespan. And so Mitch McVeigh and I did that. Mitch was also a graduate student in the lab at the time. And, you know, again, going back to this idea of being lucky, sometimes being lucky is more important than being smart. It worked, right? So we overexpressed SIR2, we put a second copy in, and the yeast lived 30% longer. So we knew we had a winner, and then it was just a matter of figuring out, you know, what was going on. And so, so that was really the first experiment showing that you could increase activity of a sir 2 and extend lifespan. And this was before that word had even been created, sirtuin, right? So, so uh, that word actually comes from sir2, the yeast gene that we were studying, sir2in. So in sort of a fortuitous, you know, circumstance, Shinamai at the time, a little bit after we were doing these experiments on lifespan in yeast, was, was trying to understand what the biochemical activity of sir2 was. And there was a big race between several different labs and Shin figured out through, you know, sort of this twisting path that I won't get into, that that SIR2 and the mammalian version of SIR2, which is called SIR-T1, were this sort of new class of epigenetic regulator of histone deacetylase called an NAD-dependent histone deacetylase. And this was a brand new biochemical activity that had never been described before. And so it was kind of a big deal. So that happening about the same time that we showed that you could increase lifespan in yeast generated a lot of excitement around sirtuins. And then I think the big catalyst was when Heidi Tissenbaum, who was also a postdoc in the lab at the time, showed that if you took the worm version of yeast sirtu and you overexpressed that in C. elegans, that that also extended lifespan. And I think that's when people really started to get excited because, you know, at the time, and I think even to some extent still today, there are lots of people who don't really think that yeast are relevant for aging in other organisms. But when, but when Heidi found that you could increase the expression of the, the worm version of SIR2 and extend lifespan, I think lots of people started paying attention. This might be really important, might be conserved. So that was sort of the birth of the, at least the SIR2 in field in aging. 
and there are lots of twists and turns and and it obviously ties into NAD and there was this, you know, controversy about whether caloric restriction acts through sirtuins or not through sirtuins. Lenny and David were very much on the caloric restriction acts by increasing activity of sirtuins. Brian Kennedy and I provided data that argued that that at least that wasn't the whole story that you don't need sirtuins for caloric restriction to extend lifespan. I think and I'll be a little bit abrasive here. I think like most of the controversies I've been involved in, time has shown that we were right. I'm not saying that sirtuins have nothing to do with caloric restriction, but I think everybody agrees that you can get lifespan extension from caloric restriction without sirtuins these days. So that's really all we said. So the field has obviously continued to expand and grow and and it's kind of where I view the, the sirtuin aging field right now is it's complicated and messy. There are seven sirtuins in, in mice and in people, you know, it's, it's hard because, um, people decided that sirtuins were important for aging. And so they've gone looking in every way, shape and form you can possibly imagine studying all of the sirtuins to death, trying to overexpress them, knock them down, express them in this tissue, that tissue. Most of that data has yielded, I would say, inconclusive evidence that sirtuins are really this sort of central regulator of aging. I think the biology that sirtuins are involved in is important and they're involved in lots and lots of different cellular processes that that intersect with aging. I'm still not completely convinced that. So I think I guess the way I would say it is sirtuins and and particularly cert six, maybe cert three, maybe cert one, are in the same network as a lot of the other things that 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 are clearly important for lifespan and, and aging in at least in mice. I'm just not convinced they're really good nodes in that network to tweak to get big effects on lifespan and health span. Cert six right now is the one that probably looks the most promising. But but again, so far the data really showing convincingly, at least in my view, that that activating cert six can have positive effects on lifespan and health span really have only come from a couple of labs. And so, you know, I, I tend to wait on these things to see you know, how reproducible is it? Is it something that everybody can get to work before I, you know, really start to believe that this is going to be a a really robust finding? The other thing that makes it complicated is that there has been a lot of, you know, again, I think what over time has proven to be questionable data around sirtuins. And I think resveratrol is a really great example, right? So resveratrol was this drug that got a bunch of attention, you know, 10, 15 years ago as an activator of sirtuins. And I think even today, we still don't really know how effective resveratrol is at broadly activating sirtuins in vivo and how important that might be for health health effects or, or lifespan. And so there have been a few of those, you know, I don't know if they're really false starts, but but areas where it's been really hard to know, you know, what's real and what's wishful thinking and, and still don't get resolved for a decade. Right. So I, I just, you know, I, again, I tend to try to focus on signal and ignore the noise. And I feel like there's a lot of noise around Sir two and still, and we really don't know what the real signal is. Matt, just a note, we, uh, in the past, we interviewed Brian and Kennedy and IDT Sambaum, David Sinclair, and also Chaim Cohen, the person that's working on the uh, 36. So, yeah. Uh, any of the listeners that want to learn more about it, they can go back and uh, find it. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Tissenbaum also said that that discovery was a bit of luck. It was like, okay, let's try it. And then it really worked out. 
<laughs> yeah, I, actually, I mean, if I remember correctly, she actually did a screen for in in worms. There are these these large genomic pieces, right? That it's a library yeah. of overexpression, and 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 one of them that she pulled out happened to have Sir two point one on it, which is the worm version of Sir two. Yeah, so you know, again, I think it was it was such an amazing time in the lab at that point because there was all these connections that were starting to emerge and and come to light, and so it was it was exciting to be around. It was also you know in some ways as a graduate student, it was it was interesting because when I started in Lenny's lab, half his lab still worked on transcription and about half worked on aging, and it was mostly in yeast. And by the time I left the lab, it had really become a sirtuin lab, and that and so it went from you know, being very broad and, and very broad, two different, two very different and very broad areas of biology to becoming very focused on this, this family of proteins. And I think still today, that's what Lenny is, is mostly known for is his work on sirtuins. And you also mentioned NAD in there. So would, you know, what are your thoughts on NAD precursors in particular? What are their impacts on longevity? We'd love to hear your, your take on those. Yeah. And so again, you know, full transparency, I don't work on NAD or NAD precursors. So I'm speaking as somebody who, you know, knows the literature and pays attention, but but hasn't really done a deep dive on this, right? So I'm not an expert in the in that regard. So, you know, I mentioned that the the sort of new activity that that SIR2 and SIR2.1 um, were found to have is this NAD dependent deacetylase activity, meaning that they actually consume NAD. So, so NAD is an activator of these enzymes. And then as part of their catalytic process, they consume NAD. And so from that, you know, Lenny early on developed a model that caloric restriction was activating sirtuins by increasing NAD levels. This was also the work of Suju Lin when she was in the lab. And when David Sinclair left and started his own lab, he kind of took that idea and ran with it. And so, you know, I think in some ways, David sort of has taken credit for that idea, but it really was work that, that came out of Lenny's lab that, that Suju started when she was in the lab. So, so the, I, the model is, right, that NAD levels decline with age and that these NAD precursors can boost NAD levels. And one of the things that that would be expected to do is to activate sirtuins because, because NAD is an activator and a substrate for, for sirtuin enzymes. And so that model has, you know, been promoted <laughs> broadly by a few people. And I think, again, we could have a debate about how good is the evidence for or against that model, but it has definitely been promoted vociferously and has has been become somewhat dogma, at least within certain circles. I think there are questions around NAD precursors. There are big questions like, to what extent does NAD levels really decline in different tissues during aging in a mammal? That's still somewhat open, at least in my view. And then another big question is of the, the the NAD of the strategies that are out there for boosting NAD levels, which are most effective. And as I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners know, there are really two primary NAD precursors that people are interested in right now: nicotinamide riboside, nicotinamide mononucleotide. And there are supplements you can go buy for either of those that, that people take with the, the goal of boosting NAD and theoretically activating sirtuins. There's a lot of controversy in the field about which of those is better, which works, how stable are they, blah, blah, blah. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure if you ask David, he'll say one thing. If you ask Charlie Brenner, he'll say another thing. They'll yell at each other about it. I don't really care. But that is a controversy that I think is still unresolved. And it makes it hard, again, it makes it hard for people who aren't really working in that area to know who to believe, right? Because you've got two people, at least, who are arguing the opposite thing at the top of their lungs, 
And if you actually look at the data, to me, it's not so convincing that either of them have big effects, at least in a mouse on aging. So this is, again, gets back to the challenge around a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in the sirtuin field has not proven to be robust or reproducible in many different labs. And nicotinamide riboside is a good example of this, right? The Alworks lab published that if you take an old mouse and you start treating it with nicotinamide riboside, you can extend lifespan and health span. If you actually look at that paper, and this is common in the field, unfortunately, their, their, their long-lived long nicotinamide riboside-treated mice actually lived as long as their controls should have lived if their controls worked. So their controls, the untreated controls were short-lived. The long-lived treated mice lived as long as their controls should have lived. That you see a lot. And at least in my experience, when that happens, it is often the case that, that that is not a reproducible result, that other labs try to do the same thing and they can't get it to work. I'm not saying that's going to turn out to be the case with nicotinamide riboside, but that's, that's the situation. The interventions testing program then went on and tried to test nicotinamide riboside in a different strain background of mice, and they saw no effect. So different strain background, slightly different treatment regimen, but it does not give a lot of confidence when you know one lab does sort of a messy experiment and gets a result. And then the, the NIH group, which is a, you know, three different sites, no sort of vested interest in any one molecule working or not, and they get no effect, you know, it makes you wonder, right? Is there any, anything real there? So again, I would say I sort of don't know ultimately how effective these NAD precursors are at either boosting NAD or having an effect on sirtuins or having an effect on aging. I certainly think that if you can, there will, there will likely be clinically relevant conditions where boosting NAD will be valuable. And I, and I think that it, there probably is a path forward for the NAD precursors for those. I just don't know yet how effective they're going to be for, for aging and lifespan. So, Matt, I would like to switch gear and talk about something that uh, I know that you are very excited about. That's rafamycin in the mTOR. So can you describe it and uh, explain why you are so excited about that? Sure. So, I mean, I think one place to start is it works for everybody, right? So, and this is going back to what I was just saying about, you know, some of the, the stuff with NAD precursors and sirtuins. So rapamycin is a small molecule inhibitor of mTOR, and it has been shown, you know, in yeast and worms and flies and mice to extend lifespan. And in mice, I would say now there are at least a dozen groups that have seen lifespan extension and probably two dozen that have seen various health span metrics improved during aging with rapamycin in mice. So it is, you know, it's kind of like, I don't, I, I don't know how familiar you are with, with C. elegans, but anybody who's a C. elegans aging person will get this. It's kind of like the DAF2 of C. elegans, where it works for everybody, it works robustly. So for me, that gives me a ton of confidence that there's something real here. I, I think we still don't know, and it would be dishonest to say otherwise, we still don't know to what extent will rapamycin or other strategies for inhibiting mTOR affect aging in people or in pet dogs, which is another area that I'm interested in. But in mice, at least, it's rock solid, crystal clear, rapamycin has broad effects on health during aging and increases lifespan, you know, at least across the three or four different genetic backgrounds where it's been tested. I would say that is another missing piece of the puzzle. Nobody has yet really tried to look across many different genetic backgrounds in mice 
to see, you know, where does rapamycin work well, where maybe doesn't it work well. It's also possible that in some cases it might even be harmful, right? And that's something that we don't typically do in the aging field, in part because, you know, aging studies in mice are expensive and take a long time. So it's it's understandable that we don't typically look at interaction with genotype, but, uh, but nobody's done that really with rapamycin, broadly speaking, yet. And I think there's reason why that that should be done because we know with caloric restriction, at least, that there's a big effect of genetic background on the impact that caloric restriction has on lifespan. So it it, it might be the case that that's true also for rapamycin and, and just it just hasn't been done yet. So, um, but 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 the reason why I'm so excited about it is it works for everybody, it works robustly, and it seems to broadly impact health across lots of different tissues and organs in a mouse during aging. And so it seems to be impacting health span, not just one disease or not just lifespan. And Dr. Tissenbaum gave us a good education on the DAF2 pathway and okay, um, good. C. Yeah. elegans. <laughs> but I do want to talk about something else that you mentioned, the dog aging project, which sounds incredibly interesting. Why did you choose dogs for this? And how has it really contributed to what we know yeah. about aging? Sure. So, so I would say, first of all, it's early. Uh, so we're just, I think, now starting to, to hopefully be able to make big contributions. So, so let me just take a step back and describe the Dog Aging Project. So it's, uh, there are really two, two components to the Dog Aging Project. The largest component is what we call a longitudinal study of aging. And so that's completely non-interventional. We're just following pet dogs, living with their owners throughout their lives and trying to understand what are the most important genetic and environmental determinants of health outcomes during aging. And so that is accomplished through um, fairly extensive owner-based surveys and uh, clinical analyses. So, so 10,000 of the dogs get their genome sequenced, a thousand dogs go into our, what we call the precision cohort, which is sort of like a systems biology cohort where every year we get metabolome, epigenome, fecal microbiome data on those dogs, in addition to, to medical records from their, their veterinary exams. So, you know, it, it's very, in structure, very much like the human longitudinal studies, like NHANES or, or Baltimore longitudinal study of aging, except dogs age about seven to 10 times faster than people do. So we can actually get, you know, a, a large component of their aging trajectory in a reasonable amount of time. So over a five-year period, you know, many dogs, especially larger dogs, which age faster, will go from, you know, vibrant sort of early adulthood to old age. And so we can actually in that time frame, you know, start to tease out hopefully what some of the strongest predictors are. Right now there's about 33,000 dogs in the the longitudinal so it's a pretty good cohort and we're already starting to get some I think interesting uh, correlative observations from that cohort. We can talk about one related to to feeding frequency if you're interested because we just recently published that or at least put out a preprint. The other part of the dog aging project is a clinical trial and this is this is a clinical trial of rapamycin. We call it TRIAD which stands for test of rapamycin in aging dogs. And the goal of that clinical trial is to answer the question, does rapamycin increase lifespan and improve health outcomes during aging in dogs? So uh, lifespan is our primary endpoint. We are powered to detect a 9% change in lifespan. It's a double-blind, uh, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And so, so that study is enrolling right now. I anticipate if, if all goes well, we'll hopefully complete the enrollment by the end of 2022. So all the dogs will be randomized. It's a one-year treatment, two-year follow-up, and then we'll unblind and, and you know we'll see what we see. For secondary endpoints, we are looking at as many 
age-related health outcomes as we can. So uh, that all the dogs get echocardiograms for cardiac function every six months. They come back in to the, to the veterinary clinic for exams. We get blood chemistry, metabolome, microbiome, epigenome, cognitive assessments every six months, activity monitoring, and then disease outcomes. So if a dog develops cancer, kidney disease, things like that. So we're really trying, those are all secondary endpoints. And we're really trying to, you know, as I said, get a feel for, for whether rapamycin increases lifespan or, and, or, you know, broadly improves health during aging in companion dogs. And again, these are all dogs, pet dogs living at home with their owners. So this is, uh, this is really, you know, in many ways, I think a pretty good model for the human situation, at least the human environment. And that's something that we really can't get in laboratory animals. Matt, are, you still, to... Sorry, go ahead, Sorry. are you still looking for a volunteer? So it's completely full. No, absolutely. So we are still recruiting both for the longitudinal study and for, for triad. So, and, and I think it's important to be clear. So, so any dog can be in the longitudinal study. There are really no requirements in terms of uh, criteria to be included in the longitudinal study. To be in triad in the clinical trial, dogs have to be at least seven years old and between I think 40 and 110 pounds at the time of enrollment. And they can't be, they can't have a pre-existing age-related disease. And again, this is, this is, it's kind of a minor thing, but it's important for the design of the trial. This is really a trial of healthy longevity. And so we are, we are starting with dogs that don't have pre-existing age-related conditions. So don't have cancer, don't have kidney disease, something like that. So the dogs have to be relatively healthy at the time of enrollment. And owners have to be willing to take their dogs to one of the partner clinical sites once every six months. So right now we have eight or nine clinical partners around the United States and we are expanding as we speak. So, so hopefully that will be doable for the majority of people who want to participate. But yeah, we are absolutely still enrolling, still looking for more dogs for both the longitudinal study and for triad. And I would definitely encourage anyone who's interested to go to the website. It's dogagingproject.org. There's a little nominate your dog button right there. And so you click on that. There's a really short, like five question form that you fill out that will then really just ask you like your name, the dog's name, dog's age, things like that. And then, and then once owners do that, they will right away get an email that will invite them to come create their portal within the, so it's a, it's an individual portal within the website where they will be asked to complete the uh, the, sur- the health and life experiences survey, which is really our baseline survey tool. All owners who complete HLES then become part of the pack. And that's the about 33,000 that I mentioned. And th- it's, it's just such a rich data set. Even if people aren't able to do any more than that, it's extremely valuable from a scientific perspective, collecting that survey information from, from these dogs. And, and uh, just to give you a hint, I mean, the survey asks all sorts of kind, kinds of questions, but just to give you a hint of the kinds of things that we're already doing with the survey, you know, one of the things that, that I think is really interesting in the aging field is this, this question of nutrition, right? So I mentioned caloric restriction. That's kind of the gold standard for slowing aging in laboratory animals. And, you know, in the, in the last decade, there has become a growing interest among people in the field to look at other variations of caloric restriction, like time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting or ketogenic diet or protein restriction. So there are lots of people studying that in mice. And there are lots of people studying that in mice and making recommendations for humans based on what they're learning in mice, which I think is a mistake, by generally speaking. So, so it occurred to me, though, that, that pet dogs might be sort of a really interesting opportunity to ask in the real world 
in sort of a natural population, is there any relationship between how often an animal is fed and what its health outcomes are during aging? And so from our survey, from that health and life experiences survey, one of the questions we ask is how frequently do you feed your dog? And owners can select once a day, twice a day, three times a day, or whenever they want. And then we ask how, many, how often do you give snacks? So, so we don't have a ton of information yet on what the owners are feeding, but we know how often they feed their dogs. And so we just did a very, very simple analysis, which said, if we take all the dogs that are fed once a day and we put them in one bin, we take all the dogs that are fed more than once a day and we put them in another bin and we look across 10 different age-related conditions, are there any differences? And, and, and so I thought this would be a cool thing to do. I, and I'm sort of on record with this, so I might have to I might have to eat crow one someday. But I really have not been a big fan of uh, time restricted feeding. I've found the data to be weak at best, and yet it's out there, you know, being pop, you know popularized in the for the general public. So I so I really didn't think this was going to work. But but when we got the data back, it was striking. So we looked at ten different categories, and they were broad. They were you know they were they were like cognitive function kidney function, heart function, you know, there are broad categories across multiple different tissues, arthritis uh, and joint problems. And in all of them, the dogs that were fed once a day were had lower risk of being diagnosed with any of these conditions. And in six of the 10, it was st statistically significant. And in a couple of them, it was big. It was like a 70% reduction in risk. Wow. So, so obviously correlation does not equal causation, right? So I certainly wouldn't want to say that feeding your dog once a day is going to cause your dog to be healthier. There are other things that could be involved, but the signal is so strong that I got to believe that there's something real there, right? It might be as simple as dogs fed once a day are less likely to be obese. And we know obesity is going to contribute to lots of different disorders, but, but I think that gives you a flavor for the, the kind of interesting and potentially very powerful data you can get from a, a purely observational longitudinal study. And that's not even longitudinal. That was just our first cross-sectional data set. So those were the surveys that the owners submitted the, when they first joined. Every year, they're asked to update those surveys. And so we'll start now to see what happens over time. And I think in the case of this, this once-a-day feeding, it'll be interesting to see with those dogs that are fed once a day, as they get older, do they continue to be protected against multiple age-related diseases? My prediction is they will, but but we'll be able to find that out as we follow these dogs over time. So it's fun. It's a lot, it's really exciting, and I'm a dog person, so I you know I it it's appealing to me from that perspective as well. That uh, that you know we might be able to have an impact on on health outcomes for people's pets, in addition to hopefully learning something important about the biology of aging that, that's relevant for humans. And I have to imagine that would pull a lot of people into aging research if they were excited about the prospect of working with dogs. I think so. I mean, that's certainly something that I've thought about from the very beginning when we launched this is that this may be a, a very powerful opportunity to, to enhance public recognition of geroscience, kind of understand a little bit about the, the biology of aging, to educate the general public about the biology of aging. And then if we're successful, if the rapamycin trial is successful, I think certainly if we can say, you know, we did this really rigorous, large-scale clinical trial, and we have data that this intervention can increase lifespan and health span in pets. That will have a big impact on public recognition of the field. You know, I don't, I don't know that it'll have an impact on FDA, right? They're, they're not going to all of a sudden go, okay, yeah, everybody should start taking rapamycin. But I do think it will have a big impact on the way that people think about the field. And, and I guarantee you, 
I mean, I already know there are lots of pet owners who want rapamycin for their dog because they email me all the time. So, <laughs> but I guarantee you, if, if the trial works, um, it's going to have, there are going to be a lot of people who want rapamycin for their dog because they want their dog to live longer and be healthier. And so I think from that perspective, yeah, there's the potential that this could really, I think, be a game changer in the way that, that people think about aging research and, and geroscience. And already, I think it's had an impact. You know, I mentioned 33,000, we have 33,000 citizen scientist owners who are participating in this study, right? Because they love dogs. And so I think from that perspective, it, it's also valuable for the scientific community in general, in that it engages the general public in science in a, in a way that I don't think there are a lot of other projects can, can really engage the average person. Absolutely, that's really cool. Okay, something we've talked about a lot or talked about quite a bit with other scientists in particular last year is inflammation and how mm -hmm. that has an impact on aging, specifically if there's any ways to control inflammation or even reverse it in order to help delay aging. Any insights that you have on that? Yeah, so the one first thing I'll say is, uh, you know, again, if I look at what where my thinking was 10 years ago, I was a late latecomer to the whole inflammation story. Because, you know, I, like I, as we talked about, I started in yeast and then I worked in worms. You know, they don't really get inflammation. So I, I wasn't really thinking much about how important this is, but I have totally gone the other direction. Like if I could say, if there's one thing you can fix in an aging dog or an aging person or even an aging mouse, if you can fix that sort of chronic sterile inflammation, that's going to have a big impact systemically on function in lots of different tissues and organs. So I, I totally believe that's probably the most important thing that we can do. If we, if you, and again, I'm being overly simplistic because I think it's necessary. What we mean when we say inflammation, I don't think even I don't think the, the real, you know, immunologists who are working in aging actually know specifically what they mean. In a general sense, I think what we know is that there is an increase in sterile immune response, aberrant immune response when it shouldn't be responding. And that has the consequence of preventing the immune system also from responding to things like COVID-19 in the elderly. So, so pathogens that it should respond to. So the changes in immune function with aging, we kind of talk about, you know, oh, immune function declines in the elderly, which is true, but it's not that simple. There is a hyperactivation of the immune system inappropriately at the same time that you're getting a decline in immune response where you need that response. And that's really, I think, what we're talking about when we're talking about inflammation. It's it's both of those things. And so so how do we stop it, right? So I mean I think I think caloric restriction, again, if you go back to the mice, there's tons of evidence that caloric restriction is really effective at tamping down on the increase in age-related inflammatory signals. I suspect that's probably true in people. There's some evidence from the controlled calorie studies to support that. Obviously, most people aren't going to be able to do 30% caloric restriction, at least not for any long period of time. So that's where a lot of this popularization of intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, fasting mimicking diets, things like that has come from. And again, you know, my view is the data in people isn't so great. I think that I think that you can get benefits on inflammation from things like intermittent fasting or fasting mimicking diets. But they're not nearly as potent, at least this is my guess, as something like a really true chronic caloric restriction. So, so are there other things you can do that really help with, with inflammation? And again, you know, I can't help it. I, keep, I always come back to rapamycin because that, to me, is kind of the gold standard. What we know in mice is rapamycin is really, really effective at blocking these 
both the inflammatory signals that are thought to come from senescent cells as, as well as other sort of chronic inflammatory signals in a whole bunch of different tissues. So I don't know for sure whether that's going to be true in people, generally speaking, but I suspect that, 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 that you can get some benefits from rapamycin at least for inflammation in certain tissues. And, you know, most of the data is anecdotal at this point because we don't have long-term controlled clinical trials to support that. There have been two pretty good clinical trials um, that were done by Joan Manick, first at Novartis and then at RestorBio with the derivative of rapamycin where they didn't really look um, deeply at inflammatory markers, but they did show some evidence for improvements in the ability of the immune system to respond to a flu vaccine in the elderly, which is what you would expect if you tamp down on the, the chronic inflammation. So that's at least consistent with the idea that, that rapamycin could have an effect on inflammation. And then just from talking to lots of people who are taking rapamycin, the sort of anecdotal stories that you hear support the idea that it probably, at least again for some people, can, can have preferential beneficial impacts for some disorders that are likely to be driven by inflammation, like autoimmune disorders as a, as a sort of general class. So I think there's probably a pretty good chance that rapamycin can, can have that effect. The other place where people have been looking for a while now are senolytics. And these are you know, small molecules that are, that are thought to target and kill senescent cells. And there are several clinical trials out of the Mayo Clinic looking at the ability of senolytics to, to have impacts in clinically relevant endpoints. And the, the mechanism, the model there is that senescent cells give off these chronic inflammatory signals. So if you can kill them with small molecules, then you'll turn down that sort of chronic increase in, in inflammation and have an effect on, on health outcomes that way. So I think there are, there are different strategies that people are taking and you know, ultimately we'll have to wait and see which are most effective in humans. But I'm, you know, I'm pretty optimistic that in the next couple of years, we'll start to get some clinical trials that show positive impacts as well as, you know, to the extent that we can really interpret it, additional data from a larger number of people that are sort of self-experimenting with these interventions. And, you know, I, I think when you get enough evidence from these anecdotal reports, you can start to believe it. And so actually one of the things I'm working on now, hopefully we'll start doing this in the next the next year, is actually starting to put together some case reports for people who are, who are taking rapamycin and have sort of interesting outcomes. Again, you know, you have to accept it for what it is. It's not a randomized clinical trial, but I think those are useful for, for, for pointing to examples where interesting effects have been seen and also starting to get a feel for what the real side effects are and what the real risks are. Cause that's another big unknown, you know, with all these people that are out there taking metformin or rapamycin or desatinib and quercetin or, you know, whatever their favorite cocktail is, we don't really know what the risks are. And so I think the only way you start to get a feel for that outside of randomized clinical trials is to actually start to gather that data. So Matt, with all the excitement about rapamycin and the other uh, small molecules, what is, in your opinion, will be the maximum lifespan that a human can achieve in our lifetime? <laughs> That's a good question. So, I mean, the, the real answer is I have no idea. So I hope, like, I, 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 think it's not, I think it's not unreasonable to think that the sort of current generation of interventions and, and the things that we will discover in the next 10 years could give most people the opportunity to make it past 100 in good health, maybe to 110, maybe 120. I don't see anything right now that convinces me that we we have figured out how to do better than that. And, you know, one of the things I point to is the the, the mouse studies, because that's really all we have at this point, right? 
the best anybody's ever done in a mouse is caloric restriction. And that's about a 60% increase in lifespan in a mouse. Many people will say that 60% in a mouse is going to be much less in a human if, if that intervention works the same way. So let's just say we discount that by a little bit. Let's say, you know, we can do 30, 40% average lifespan in a person. So that takes us from, you know, 80 years to 105-ish, 110. I think that's plausible. And I think that that probably some of the stuff that we're studying now or that we'll be studying in the next few years can do that in people. At least there's a, a decent chance. What it's going to take to get significantly beyond that is really hard to predict. And I would I like to be optimistic. I am in general an optimistic person, but but I also look at caloric restriction and say, you know, that was discovered in 1935. And the experiment where they got a 60% extension was done in the 1980s, right? That was Rick Weindrick and Roy Walford. So I feel like in some ways, the aging field has stagnated a bit in, in terms of discovering new, really robust ways to target aging at the expense of really drill, drilling deep or, you know, playing around with these other nutritional interventions that, you know, maybe have a 10% effect on lifespan in mice. So I would I hope, and I think there are people thinking about different ways now to go back and start to really try to change the game. We'll see if epigenetic reprogramming is a game changer. It might be. So far, nobody has shown that you can increase lifespan in a mouse with epigenetic reprogramming. So, you know, we'll see. But but if that sort of lives up to the hope and there isn't some, you know, obstacle that can't be overcome with reprogramming, then, you know, maybe we can get beyond. 40%, 50%. I think the other unknown is what's going to happen in the areas of like bioengineering and, you know, organ replacement, things like that. What are going to be the hurdles that we we have a trouble overcoming and how effective can it be growing new organs and putting them into a human body a, as things wear out? So those are unknowns and those are a little bit outside my area of expertise as well. So I, I try not to, you know, really try to talk with authority about that. Unfortunately, this is one thing that drives me nuts is how often scientists feel like talking with authority about things they know nothing about. You see this in the aging field all the time, but I'm sure it happens in other fields. So I try not to do that. So I really don't know what the, what the obstacles are to overcome. My guess is the real challenge is going to be um, the brain and how, you know, even if you can reprogram the brain what, what, what does that mean, right? Are you a different person when you, when you reprogram your brain? I don't know. I think we have so such little understanding about, you know, the way memories are stored and personality works that I, I, would, I would be concerned. But, but that to me is probably the hardest thing to overcome, even if reprogramming and, you know, sort of engineering our way around organ failure is possible. I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. So that's sort of a long-winded way of saying I have no idea. But um, but I but I am I am sort of optimistic that that the things that we know about now, you know, once we can figure out how to actually test these things in people, are likely to have benefits that could be on the order of a couple of decades for the average person. And I think that's a pretty big deal. So I also I also don't want to minimize that, you know, by talking about living to be 200 years old, which there's no evidence is, is reasonable anyways. When I think that what is probably feasible is, is pretty impressive and, and is going to be important. And, and, and so I think that, you know, that that's where I tend to try to keep my, my focus, at least for right now. Thank you. Okay. And final question. So at Inside Tracker, we are very interested in those N of one studies that you just mentioned. I also really like your phrase of citizen scientists. I think we have a lot of those as, as customers of Insight Tracker too. But we would love to know what's one decision that you make each day 
either nutrition or specifically based on your knowledge of longevity that you can share as a tip with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I would say for me, probably the 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 most effective thing for my sort of health and well-being that I've discovered over the last decade has been how to do uh, resistance exercise in a way that works for me. So, you know, I've been active all my life. I played sports in high school and, and you know, have been active the entire time. But it, it, it's insane that it took me, you know, 30 years to figure out that I should go back to basics, right, in terms of moderate exercise for me, at least at my life stage, bench press, deadlifts, squats, bent over rows. That's all that I need to know. And it works really well for me. And I think, you know, since I started doing that, my physical health has been, has improved dramatically. My mental health has improved dramatically. And I can, you know, and and you see it in all sorts of little ways, right? Like, you know, I will, I will be around people my age and, you know, a, a, a couch needs to be moved. There's no problem for me to pick it up and move it. And the other guy is dying. You know, <laughs> something that we could have done 20 years ago, no problem. And then we go have a beer. This guy has to sit down and take a break after moving the couch two rooms, right? So, so the, I, I mean, I think, honestly, I, at least for me, the regular exercise, I think, is the most important thing that anybody can do. And it's probably the, I hate to say easy, because it's, it, it's not, I mean, it is easy, but it's hard for people to, to figure out what works for them. But I think it's much easier than diet in a lot of ways. And for me personally, it's been fantastic. The other thing that I've also found in the last five years is I do much better on a generally low carb diet. So I'm not a keto guy. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about exactly what I'm eating, but I I find personally that I do a lot better on a generally low carb diet. So, you know, part of what, part of where I have gotten to is I think, I think figuring out, um, what sort of lifestyle changes you can make at an individual level, because it's not going to be the same for everybody, is really important. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle. And there aren't often a lot of great tools out there to help people figure out what works for them, mm-hmm. because it's complicated, right? It's your genetics, it's your environment, it's your lifestyle, it's your family, it's your job. But I think figuring out what what you can do that works for you is really important. So I would say, I mean, you know, look, it's not rocket science, diet and exercise, right? It's what anybody's probably going to tell you, but figuring out what works for you, I think is, is really important. And then every once in a while, I take a little bit of rapamycin. <laughs> that works for me too. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for being here. Sure. No problem. It's been fun. And we are looking forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.insidetracker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.